This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Since when do you know how to fly? 190 years old? You look great. So how long till we get the Chewbacca origin story? I think I need a lot of subtitles for that. A clip there from Solo, A Star Wars Story, which opens this weekend. Alden Ehrenreich, so good in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar a couple of years back, taking over as the new, old, young Han Solo. He's got the leather jacket and the blaster, but can he nail the smirk? We shall see our review of Solo, plus an interview with legendary screenwriter-director Paul Schrader. That and more... Are you a Muppet? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Just a couple of weary hobbits, you and I, Josh, back from last week's epic journey to Middle Earth for the 15th anniversary of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. We did discuss all three films and shared our top five scenes from the trilogy. You know what we should have done if we had been smart about it? Split that into three episodes as Jackson did. Yeah. I mean, we could have have even gone full Hobbit. And we could record it it in one night. One night. (laughs) Nine to 12 episodes, and we'd be set for a month or two. Man, where were you when we were I know. having that production meeting? I'm not sure I actually fully left Middle Earth about 20 minutes ago when I thought I was the one responsible for scrounging together an intro for Solo, which we'll talk about in a minute. I was actually riffing in my mind on the comparisons to Lord of the Rings and how Obi-Wan in the original Star Wars is Gandalf and Luke is Frodo and... I wow. thought maybe Han would be Aragorn, and, and that's where it ended. I think it's for the best <laughs> that we're all spared that. Absolutely. I do think I probably disappointed a fair number of people. I feared that by liking those movies, I would please many, and it does seem to be that way. I yes. haven't gotten any negative comments yet, but also, you know there are some people out there 
some snarky, cynical folks out there oh, yeah. who hated these movies or at least didn't fully go for them. And they saw in me a kindred spirit and I betrayed and them. And they've lost you. No, there have been some snarky social media comments. I've seen one or two. Just One just popped up today. Oh, yeah? Cave trollish when it comes to The Lord of the Rings. Really? Not just regular trolls. They're cave trolls. And they weren't too happy that we were spending this much time on those films. So okay. I, I really don't think they would have liked the nine-episode plan. Mm. So it's probably working out for them. <laughs> it doesn't best. sound like they would have. Later in this show, we'll, we'll move past the Lord of the Rings, we will share our conversation with Paul Schrader, the legendary screenwriter, film critic, and director, probably best known for his work with Martin Scorsese, writing Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, but he also directed more than 20 films, including Affliction, starring Nick Nolte and American Gigolo, with Richard Gere. His latest as director, which some critics are already calling the best of his career, is First Reform, starring Ethan Hawke as a despairing church pastor. He returns to his themes and an aesthetic approach that he wrote about at length as a critic in the early 70s. We will get into all of that in our conversation later in the show. But first, Disney has expanded its Star Wars universe by making a standalone Han Solo film. I've got a complicated feeling about this. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. Whoa! <laughs> L3! Let's go with a mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might wanna buckle up, baby. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, Adam. Maybe it was even around the release of The Last Jedi. Growing up in the 1980s, one of our pastimes as kids running around the neighborhood was acting out scenes from the original Star Wars movies. Inevitably, when it was time to pick our parts, who we got to play, me and my friends would fight over who got to be Han Solo. The loser, he always had to be Luke. Han may not have had a lightsaber, but he had swagger. He got all the good lines, and plus, Leia had a thing for him. Needless to say, Han Solo is one of my beloved childhood movie characters, right up there with another Harrison Ford persona, Indiana Jones. So it was with trepidation that I greeted the news of Disney's planned spinoff movie detailing Han Solo's youth. My hopes grew when the directors were named Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who previously made the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street, but then those two were fired, and Ron Howard was brought in to finish the project. Still, the movie would star Alden Ehrenreich, who nearly stole the Coen brothers' Hail Caesar from the likes of George Clooney, Ray Fiennes, Tilda Swinton, Scarlett Johansson, and Josh Brolin. As cowboy star Hobie Doyle, Ehrenreich showed he had the charisma, versatility, and playfulness to maybe, just maybe, make this work. And to me, that was the crucial question for Solo, a Star Wars story. This movie was only going to soar if Ehrenreich nailed the lead performance. So, Adam, as another child and Star Wars fan of the 1980s, I want to know, is this your Han Solo? (laughs) Or is that maybe not a fair question? Am I perhaps bringing too much nostalgic baggage to bear on Solo, a Star Wars story? Well, I'm just not completely convinced that the problem with this movie, and there are 
problems with this movie can be borne by the shoulders of Alden Ehrenreich. I'm not quite sure it's his fault, but I can't wait to hear your take, and I'm sure we will discuss in more detail. But yeah, I think back to Star Wars and meeting Han Solo for the first time in A New Hope. You had Luke Skywalker. He had a lightsaber, for crying out loud. He's learning how to use the Force, how to become a Jedi. Obi-Wan Kenobi, yeah, sure, he's, he's a little old, he's a little long in the tooth, but he's a Jedi master, yet, as you said, me, you, everyone we knew when we were kids— ran around the neighborhood wanting to be Han Solo. We wanted to fire his blaster. We wanted to fly the Millennium Falcon. We wanted to wear that awesome jacket. And we wanted to have his confidence and his charm and his supreme nonchalance, even if we never would have articulated it that way when we were five. So my question that I almost want to throw back to you, Josh, is how did we get an origin story where he's not only not the most interesting character in the movie, he's honestly maybe sixth or seventh? At best, if I'm just listing characters in the film who I prefer in that this might, movie. That might be a little strong. No, but no. You, you can no, I mean make it. a case for it. Yeah. I'd start, number one, with Kira, Amelia Clark, his love interest. Okay. Well, right. hear me out here. I don't think she gets enough to do, but we'll talk about her more in a moment. Tobias Beckett, Woody Harrelson. I'd put him second, probably, competing with Lando Calrissian. Yeah, there Donald you go. Glover. Chewbacca, yes. frankly. <laughs> that, this is my Chewbacca, even though it's also a different actor we'll get to. Okay. And then I might even throw in two truly supporting characters in the movie, but I still think I'd rather follow them for an entire film than the Han we get here. Phoebe Waller-Bridge's L3, yes. the droid who is Lando's co-pilot, and Paul Bettany's baddie Dryden Voss, who benefits from being played by Paul Bettany. Quick note about the droid. It's interesting that in Rogue One, I think one of the most interesting characters was also the droid there. They've they've come up with a way to make these supporting yeah. parts really interesting and register, you know, like C-3PO and, and R2-D2. But I would also make a comparison to Rogue One that the person at the center is not as compelling as they should be. Right. And I do just want to explain my point about Kira because it ultimately informs my thoughts on Han. I didn't pick her first because she's the lone female primary character or because she's much more than the damsel in distress the movie tricks us early on into thinking she might be. But, Josh, it's because she's actually the only character in this entire film who brings any kind of stakes to the movie. Pretty early on, we recognize that her arc will ultimately determine what becomes of our hero, Han. And pretty late, we recognize it may ultimately determine more. She's the only conflicted character, really, in this entire movie, whose fate doesn't seem determined ahead of time. And that makes her exciting as a character. But it did all make me realize that Kira and her origin story is the one I wish I was watching instead of Han Solo's, which is ludicrous. Well... <laughs> Ludicrous. Okay, you're you're stronger on this than I am, which is a little bit of a relief. I would actually, I, I'm really split down the middle on this thing. I think I would recommend it to those who are invested in these stories and this universe because there are enough pleasantries on the sidelines to make this for me a bit more enjoyable than something like. Rogue One. But Kira... I think I'd agree with that. Okay. Well, what's interesting about <laughs> yeah. Kira, though, is you referenced you'd want to see her origin story. 
the movie continually references it. It's like, you don't know what I've been through. You mm-hmm. don't know what I've had to do. They never fill that in. And of no. course, it, it makes logistical sense. This is the Han Solo movie. But maybe the fact that we feel that as a gaping hole is a reflection exactly of what you're saying, is that the movie doesn't give Han Solo himself a lot to to grab onto. I, I don't mean to say... I mean, we should just jump right in on Aaron Reich's performance. And, and I'm not doing this to mean to say this is all his fault. But I think his element is what had to work. The structure works against him, though, in that this movie is slam-bang action from the start for much of it requiring Ehrenreich to define this character by action. Now, you may say that makes sense because this is an action movie, but we're trying to learn about Han Solo's origins. We don't want to sit through like a trench warfare sequence that really, aside from him making a few jokes here or there, uh, doesn't tell us much about the formation of this character. Uh, and that's in that's in the screenplay stage, okay? So there are other things that are working against him. And generally, I agree, Michael Phillips, when he's on the show, he's reminded us many times the last people to blame are the cast, right? Uh, and I, I think that's that's good advice. That makes a lot of sense. What Aaron Reich is not, he's kind of splitting the difference here. And I don't want to sound like a fanboy who wants the exact same, despite my setup, the exact same Han Solo that I knew from my youth. And if there's anything at all different, it's not going to count. It's terrible. And this is a travesty. I don't necessarily need that. I would almost be happier with a reinterpretation if Aaron Reich had gone in a totally different direction Mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to start somewhere that surprises us and we'll eventually get to something more familiar. He doesn't do that. And yet he doesn't do a full on impression. I was trying to put my finger on it. He's he's trying to do – he has a lot of grinning. He makes a lot of cocksure comments. He has attitude. But there's something else missing. It was, You know who he reminded me of more than a young Han Solo or a young Harrison Ford, I should say, is a young Leonardo DiCaprio doing a bad impression of Han Solo. There, there's Think of Leo when he was doing those weaselly early roles, right, when he was younger. And, and there's an element of that to this performance that kind of threw me off where you could squint and see that. There's a bit of Han Solo in there, but it's not really the same thing. So it falls in this middle ground that isn't – it isn't anything. There's nothing there to latch on to. I agree with you, and yet I still would like to see what he would have done in a more interesting film with a better screenplay. There's a lot of clunkiness here, and I just mean in some of the dialogue in addition to – how structurally unsound it is. And actually, that maybe is a little bit too harsh. It's not like this thing doesn't breeze by. And that, as you said, it doesn't have some pleasant moments. It does. This isn't a disaster by any stretch. But I think for me, it gets back to the core issue with this film, which is they just didn't make him compelling enough. And you're right. He isn't doing a full-on impression, but there are hints of it there. You said grin, and I think that really is what it is. The few moments where we see a young Harrison Ford come through are when he does that smile. There's two or three moments in the movie where you feel like you're looking at Harrison Ford just briefly from A New Hope, where he's got those pursed lips and he kind of squints as he smiles. And he also has that tendency from time to time where he reacts very demonstrably before saying a line. We get that grin. We get that smile. Literally every other trait 
is non-existent. And it's really about the character, though, not the performance. There was conflict in Han Solo from, obviously, A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. This character who doesn't believe in the Force and doesn't buy into all this stuff, but you see that there are elements of it that he is attracted to and he is buying into it. The fact that he's this selfish rogue outlaw who also can't stop himself from doing the right thing when the opportunity presents itself. And in this movie, we have another character saying to him, just outright, you're the good guy or something along those lines. And the thing is, we believe it because we really haven't seen that other element, that darkness in him at all come through at any point. This is an origin story for him, and yet I still feel like I need to know how this character, this Han Solo, becomes the Han of A New Hope. Did they mess something up, or am I missing something? Is another movie coming that's going to come in between them in the timeline? Because this movie doesn't get us there. I think they drew out the diagram for it. I think it is in the execution, because I talked about how he's defined through action, and I will say that much of the action he takes is to turn and run away from conflict, to spare himself. Those are seeds of the Han Solo you were just describing. So that made sense to me. But the difficulty was this is completely at odds with this other Han Solo they want, who is that brash romantic who is going to do whatever he can to get back to Kira. Once there, mm-hmm. and this is not a spoiler, very early on they get separated. And he makes this pledge, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to go on these risky missions to make money so I can return to her. So here is this idealist. And again, I could I could see defenders of the film saying, well, this is all setting up how this young kid was in love once. Right, and, and it shattered it that It shattered and he became and the cynic. But again, it's a movie trying to split it down the middle Yes, because they're also showing us that it's an instinct of his to run away and save his hide. And you can't have those two things. There's not conflict there. There's not Hmm. the inner conflict you're describing that we see in the original Star Wars films where Han is pulled one way or another. It's in this scene. He's going to be the romantic who will do whatever it takes and sacrifice himself for this woman. And then in the next scene, he's going to be the guy who runs away from battle. I didn't really see him like that in this film. I always saw him as running this one. I always saw him as running towards trying to get back to her. At some point, every well, decision he makes. Well, is think about by in that, that uh, trench warfare sequence. He's mm-hmm. he's trying to preserve himself through that whole section, and then there are other decisions he makes when he gets in with Woody Harrelson's gang, where yeah. he's uh, yes, he's trying to preserve himself, maybe to get to her eventually. Exactly. It's but to get away from moment, the empire. But in 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 that moment, it's yeah. to save his own skin. So I I see that they could say, hey, we diagrammed all this. It's all here, but on the screen, it does not come off convincing no. at all. No, it doesn't, and. I was thinking about this movie and origin stories in general and what can make them exciting. And I think what it is is that they do fill in some blanks that if you buy into the mythology of any film that you can describe as mythological, you want to see those blanks filled in to an extent, but it's the discovery where the magic really is. And I know you disagree with me about This particular film I'm going to start with here, even though I know you like the more recent versions, The Wrath of Khan. Do you remember how The Wrath of Khan opens? I don't. Okay. Well, many listeners I know do. It opens with a training exercise. If I'm remembering the movie correctly, and it has been a long time, it's Kirstie Alley's character. Savick is the trainee in this case, and she is 
going through the Kobayashi Maru, which she fails. And we hear about how Captain James T. Kirk is the only person who went through this training exercise and beat it. And we just saw how impossible it was. And we think about ourselves in that situation, and we can't imagine how it could ever turn out any other way, but Kirk beat it. And then we get J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, and we actually get to watch the young Kirk beat the Kobayashi Maru. There is a certain thrill in witnessing that, if you care at all about these movies and that lore. But the discovery is seeing Kirk do it and how that ultimately informs his character. I'm thinking about this film solo, and I'm trying to figure out why it exists at all beyond being able to offer fans the superficial thrill of seeing two things. One, Han do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. Something, let's be clear, nobody has ever clamored to have shown to us. That's, in fact, the beauty of the boast in A New Hope is that we don't we understand no what it even literally means. Right. what it means, but we understand everything we need to know about it because of Ford's delivery of the line. The second thing this movie shows us is how he got the Millennium Falcon from Lando, which is also not a mystery any of us really cared about. What mattered is that they disagreed about how it went down and that there were some hard feelings about it and what that told us about their relationship. The details themselves do not matter. But when Solo ends, what does it give you? What does it give any fan of this franchise except seeing those two things play out? Okay, I'm going to argue with you a bit in that I liked that the Millennium Falcon element, that answer, let's just say the rug is pulled out some misdirection. From, there, there's some misdirection sure. that I thought was clever that I would that I was fine with. Um, the Kessel Run thing. I mean, it's you know, it's essentially another space flight sequence. So that was probably going to happen no matter what. Where I think you're right, and there there are other elements of this is there is no inventiveness in some of this fan service. No. So the Millennium Falcon thing, I think, is rather inventive. When we find out how he gets his name. I mean, that's... Well, that's a groaner. Th- uh, yeah, that's just... <laughs> I mean, like, that's just a flat-out groaner. You almost wonder if they put it in there on purpose, knowing that it is In the gonna... Lord and Miller version, it was probably meant to be a laugh line. Well, honestly. okay, so this brings us to what we do need to talk about, is can you tell the seams here? When I you felt like I could to... tell the scenes that the, were directed oh, I, I by the them scene, or like conceived. the actual scenes I know, of the movie and I'm splitting saying, apart. I think you can specifically yeah. in certain scenes. I think you're right. The, not structurally for me as much as just the sense of humor, the tone. There's there's almost like too much space between jokes and beats. And oh, yeah. it's, it's like almost in slow motion, the humor, compared to maybe what we would have gotten if they had been able to follow it through. So I think that is... Another significant problem, and to be fair, one that Aaron Reich is up against in trying to give a performance amidst that disjointedness. Um, can I get to some of the stuff that that I think does work, though? Because sure. uh, I, can I, I am... kind of give you one more negative? All right, go ahead. Okay, it picks up a thread that we talked about in relation to the Last Jedi quite a bit. That I argued was unique to the series, or felt unique to the series, even if, as some listeners pointed out, there are nods to it at least in the Phantom Menace when we see Anakin's beginnings and the fact that he comes from a family of slaves right. and they have to try to earn their freedom. The class but issues. The class issues. Yeah. That really, though, plays out over the course of The Last Jedi. It's woven into the fabric of that film, this sense of social justice and dealing with notions of inequality beyond the 
general concepts of rebellion and empire mm-hmm. that, of course, are at the heart of this whole series. In this movie, we get it again, but it's completely tacked on. It's forced. It offers no satisfaction in any way, shape, or form. It really does feel like something that was thrown on to try to give this movie a little bit of heft, a little bit of profundity. There's none here, though. What's interesting is it's that's all true, yet I found that element really compelling. When those characters showed up and were given time and space and scenes of their own, that felt more real to me than anything with Han Solo. Huh. That, that I felt, wanted it to. That felt like where where this Star Wars universe is starting to get built out in interesting new ways. Curiously, it had nothing to do with Han Solo. No. Um, so the texture of those yes. scenes and the, and the performances in of those small roles, I think were really good. And it maybe it just helps that it's on, I'm assuming this is near the end, on that yes. beach planet yes. where it's a lot we of sand. We won't get into again. any more okay. details. Yeah, no, point. we won't. But I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yes, we are. That had a, that had a richness and a, a texture to it. I agree, though. It is, it is tacked on. Yes. Independent of everything that came before, it could have been more tied into... Han and Kira's origins, where, again, this is a weird thing. They are apparently, when we first meet them, captives or or wards, at least, of this gangster, Lady Proxima, mm-hmm. uh, another maybe more interesting character. She, she's like a 15-foot-tall centipede who is running a gang of – or a network of child thieves. Now, why Han and Kira are like the only – 20-somethings among us <laughs> makes no sense to me. But that could have tied into what you're talking about, this this essence of another class being exploited. Yeah, and in fairness, we do get another scene of that about midway through this film. There is a major set piece where we are introduced again to the idea of slaves and people being freed. But I think maybe my larger issue, Josh, is that as you're indicating here, it doesn't tie back in any way at the end of the film, it doesn't tie back no. to Han and Kira it at all. Tie not back even to Han. not even one moment of introspection, not one close up, not one second for Han to process this and us to process it through him. There's none of that. It's all surface level. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And and it should all be going through him and his character. Okay, so here's what works. I did like that high sequence um, on that train in the snowy mountains yes. where the track mm-hmm. turns. And so it's like a, a, it's a spiral track. And so the train will turn on its side and almost go all the way under. I thought that was really well choreographed. It does bring in this third element of mercenaries, let's say. And I think those, the little Star Wars things like costume design and ship design all come into play in a way that I think is pretty exciting and thrilling and offers some new stuff there. Don't you think too, Josh, that in that scene, as well as the early escape scene with Han and Kira, at least to me, and maybe I'm just clueless here about CGI, but I'm sure it was employed, but it feels very practical. There's a sense when they're trying to escape from Proxima's henchmen or hench creatures that they really are. And there were a couple shots in particular that emphasized this aspect that made it feel like they were truly operating some kind of 
hover car as opposed to maybe even I'm thinking about like Minority Report, right? When we see Tom Cruise and those vehicles and the way they travel through the different expressways, none of that really feels real. But here, this feels like they're they're operating vehicles. And I liked that touch. I would agree. I think both of those sequences, the effects work, which is certainly there, is pretty strong. Though I will say that ending on that desert planet, the reason it registers for me is because that is clearly practical. Like they're standing on a real yeah. beach. They're in real sand. Yep. And, and I think that's why it resonates. You mentioned the droid L337, the touch of this being a robot rights activist, you know, and then that amusing voice performance by Phoebe Waller-Bridge yep. is really strong. And here, let's get to the performances that work. These are the ways that this movie really could have taken off if Aaron Reich had been able to capture something of this. You mentioned Donald Glover as Lando. Now he's doing a full-on Billy D. Williams impersonation. Yeah. Right? He's got he's got the raised eyebrows, the smooth delivery. But it works, I think, partly because he's a supporting performance. So we don't get a ton of that. A whole and because movie, he nails it. <laughs> it. He absolutely nails it. But there's something – there's a little bit more to it where it's almost like he's – this is Lando Carissian as a kid auditioning to be Lando Carissian in Empire Strikes Back. It, it's he's playing the part himself. You know, mm-hmm. he's kind of feeling himself out and seeing is this gonna is this gonna work for me in this galaxy? Yep. And there's something fun about that. We mentioned Chewbacca here played by a Finnish actor, Yunus Suetamo, who actually played Chewbacca. I just realized this after Solo, but he played him in The Last Jedi, and he was a stand-in or a body double for original Chewbacca, Peter Mayhew, in The Force Awakens. So he's had a little bit of experience, and I think he nails it. And I think that You know, you could say, well, you just stand there in a big furry suit and you wave your arms around. No, it's this is also a beloved character who we have had every not just growl or howl, but every tilt of the head, every sideways glance embedded in our collective consciousness. Right. So we'll know if those things aren't on. And so this is. In a way, a performance of affectionate mimicry, but he gets it down. He gets all of those little touches down. And I will say this. I bought – you mentioned some of the line deliveries where you could see glimmers of Mm -hmm. Harrison Ford. Where I saw Harrison Ford were their interaction, their chemistry. Some of his one-liners in response to Chewbacca are those same kind of deadpan jokes. The same stuff that Ford and Mayhew brought back in The Force Awakens that was such a thrill to see at work again. These two have managed to capture that. And I will say as this movie progressed and Han Solo and Chewbacca's relationships started to form more into what we have come to know, Mm -hmm. that that clicked in a way that I think the whole movie was probably going for. So, you know, there's probably going to be more of these. I see some hope in that. Aaron Reich should stick close to Suatomo and they can make the most of that chemistry that they clearly have here. That's my hope, at least. Yeah. And you know what, Josh, as you talk about Chewbacca and that chemistry, it does make me realize that beyond just appreciating the character Chewbacca and the performance of Chewbacca, that's the other bit of discovery here that actually oh, works. And that's a, yeah, that's fact, a good that's one. The only discovery. The thrill we're getting as fans 
is watching that origin, watching how they meet They're and how cute. they how they ultimately become the pair that they are. And there is enough discovery there that that's rewarding. Yeah. Seeing how that develops, unfortunately, it's just not quite enough for me or you, it sounds like. If you see Solo, a Star Wars story, and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So somehow, Adam, you saw Deadpool 2? I did. right? All right. We'll get your thoughts on this week's superhero movie when we come back, plus Massacre Theater and our interview with First Reformed writer-director Paul Schrader. Stay with us. Zoe Deschanel there and Cameron Crowe's almost famous, sharing a final bit of wisdom and a great stash of records with the movie's young hero, William Miller. That's Simon and Garfunkel's America on the soundtrack, which, you know, us non-classic rock experts may not think of that as classic rock. But according to one expert, Stephen Hyden, a former guest here on the show, it technically classifies having been listening recently to the audiobook of his latest work twilight of the gods a journey to the end of classic rock he does pinpoint the beginning of it as 1967 with sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band america from 68 okay it's in the period anyway but it's got to be yeah so there's there's the period definition and then there is the aesthetic definition the aesthetic as well, definition right? which we will get into in some detail yeah. with a top 5 list this is next why we're talking like this. Yes. We are going to share our top five classic rock moments in movies. I'm already calling it the Layla Goodfellas memorial list in the Pantheon, so not eligible. But when I think about Clapton and I think about that outro, of course, I think about that freezer truck door being opened and that song kicking in in Martin Scorsese's film. Steven is also going to Give us a few thoughts on a movie that should be near and dear to his heart, almost famous, a movie about a budding rock critic. So we're going to do a Sacred Cow review of that. We'll bring Steven on. We'll get his take, and then we will launch into that top five. We would love to hear your picks. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. I mentioned that Haydn has been on the show before. He joined us back in 2016 for our top five movie rivalries when we talked about Star Trek versus Star Wars, There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men, Crash versus Brokeback Mountain, and others. That list was inspired by his previous book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life. So I'm about a quarter of the way through the audiobook. Hope to get to more of Twilight of the Gods. Good stuff, I assume. Yeah, before next week's show, and it might just inform some of my choices. He's a great writer. If you're not familiar with his work, currently 
writing for Uproxx, but formerly a contributor to Grantland and the AV Club. We should mention that there is also something else at play here with this sacred cow, just as we talked about the Lord of the Rings films looking ahead to next year's film spotting madness, our best of the 2000s. Almost famous, a movie that is on the shortlist. It could be a contender. If you haven't seen it already, now is your chance. We do have some movie passes to give away, some admit to passes to an advanced screening of the new documentary, The Gospel According to Andre. That screening is Tuesday, May 29th here in Chicago. If you are one of our Chicago area listeners, check out filmspotting.net slash events from time to time for more information on those passes and how to enter. Over at our website, we also have our film spotting poll posed to you last week on the show. We asked which actor did the best job taking over an iconic role. So far, it looks like Tom Hardy's Mad Max and Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi are battling for the lead. Chris Pine's Captain Kirk, who I would say is the best model for what Aaron Reich probably was going for yeah, or maybe, maybe should so. have been going mm-hmm. for in Solo. Well, he and Michael Fassbender's Magneto are not far behind there in the polling so far. Anne Hathaway's Catwoman, Zachary Quinto's Spock, and James McAvoy's Professor X are rounding out the options. Brett Garrett in Portland, Oregon writes in, My pick for the iconic character takeover would be one not listed. Jeff Bridges as Rooster Cogburn in the True Grit remake. It's hard to take over a role from one of the most iconic actors in history, John Wayne. This role won John Wayne an Oscar and got Bridges a nomination as well. I think Bridges adds more depth than the original performance, so I'd choose that over the typical rotating superhero fare. We'll probably see four more versions of Magneto and Captain Kirk before we die, which is fair. All of that's fair. A note, we did figure that the majority of our listeners hadn't seen the original True Grit, especially as I, sadly, haven't even seen the original True Grit. So we did omit it. Yeah, Wayne is good in it, but Brett, Brett is right. I mean, Jeff Bridges just brings something entirely different to the role. We also heard from Mike Cahotis on Twitter. He said, surprised you didn't have the replacement of Richard Harris by Michael Gambon as Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies after Harris's untimely passing in the poll. Afraid the Potterheads would skew the poll? We did have this on our short list. Our wonderful PA, Andy Mitchell, included that option, overlooked by one Sam Van Hallgren, who I believe did note on Twitter that anything Harry Potter related just is completely out of his realm of understanding. (laughs) So that means we have to bring Sam on for a Harry Potter Sacred Cow retrospective in 10 years where he will say how wonderful that is. I like it. Your vote matters in the Film Spotting poll. You can find it on the main page of filmspotting.net if you leave a comment, and we hope you will. Please let us know where you're listening from. Josh, the Cannes Film Festival just wrapped up last weekend. We did not go. No. But it may have an impact on future film spotting programming. As listeners know, I think we brought it up last week or maybe the week before. We're talking about what our next marathon might be, where we discover or discover in a lot more detail and depth a filmmaker's work. We were considering Hal Ashby and Paul Schrader and also Claire Denis, but it was Japanese director Hirokazu Koreda and his film Shoplifters winning the Palm d'Or, the top prize of the Cannes Film Festival. And that did make me realize that he should probably jump to the top of our marathons list. He's got eight or nine films here. Actually, I think it's 11 feature films, and I've only seen one of them 
Still Walking from 2008, which some people do consider his masterpiece. It's a film I'd love to revisit as it has been 10 years, but a lot of great titles there, including last year's After the Storm that I need to see. Yeah, I saw After the Storm, liked it quite a bit, not as much as Sam Van Hollen. No, his favorite movie. Yeah, And he loved Lady Bird as much as I did. Yeah. He still liked After the Storm more last year. It's strong. It's strong. What I feel bad about is I saw Afterlife, you know, around 1998. I don't remember exactly when it played in the States and absolutely loved it. So I had no excuse to not see another film of his till 2017, which is right. what happened. So this is clearly a blind spot for me as well. Yeah, so he is definitely in consideration, along with Ashby Schrader and Denis. And I swear, Josh, I'm not saying this just to torture listeners who've been with us since 2007 and have been hearing about a John Cassavetes marathon since then. It's still on the short list. Yeah, I think, on the list. I think we could get to it. I really do think... But what would we do? Sometime before the end of film spotting. Oh, okay. It might be 25 years from now. <laughs> I think that's a fair bet. But we'll get to Gassimedes at some point. You can check out some of our future marathon options. Not saying we're going to get to all of them, but we do have a list at filmspotting.net if you click on our marathons page. Some other notable winners, Josh at Con Spike Lee. Very excited about Black Klansman, and it took the festival's second prize. Oh, August can't come soon enough. I think August 10 is when that will be released here in the States. The winner of the Best Director Award was Poland's Paweł Pawlkowski for his film Cold War. You remember him, of course, from 2013 with Ida, mm-hmm. which was absolutely wonderful. And we found out in our interview with Paul Schrader, actually an inspiration for First Reformed. Yeah, a movie about a young nun in 1960s Poland. And Iranian director Jafar Panahi, one of my favorites, his movie Three Faces won the Screenwriting Award. Now let's get to the real business of this show. A correction, a little one, but not for once something we got wrong, something a listener got wrong. No, that doesn't happen. I know. Last week, we opened our Lord of the Rings conversation with a note from longtime listener Eric Roke from Miami, Florida. Eric wrote in defending the two towers and Return of the King from the potential criticism that they emphasize action and spectacle over character building. He assumed that I specifically might find fault with the films for that reason. Turns out he was wrong. Those are my two favorite of the trilogy. Eric also wrote this. You may not remember, but years ago, there was an episode where Adam and Sam discussed the top five movie sidekicks. Sam included Redacted from Redacted on his list, and neither had Sean Astin's Samwise Gamgee. I shot off an email bemoaning this fact and demanding that the list be rechristened the Samwise Gamgee Memorial List. I was excited when I had my email read on the show, but was nonetheless <laughs> mocked for the suggestion. So we are not talking about the Brian De Palma movie, Redacted, which yeah. we really don't need to talk about at all on the show ever again. But the numerous mentions of the word Redacted did exactly the opposite of what Sam wanted when he took out that movie's title. It only made people really curious to know what film and what character he dared to include as a movie sidekick. I tried to investigate on air. Yeah, and you couldn't find it. I hit a brick wall. Even though it is actually there in the archives, but there is an explanation for what threw you, Josh. We tracked down the tape of that sidekick's top five, episode 118 from August 2006. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Sam is innocent. Let's go to the tape. 
My number five is Bonnie Hunt as Laurel Boyd in Jerry Maguire. Okay. Um, reason being, she takes this prototypical female sidekick that we see in tons and tons of romantic comedies and really turns it on its ear. The female sidekick Bonnie Hunt as Laurel Boyd in Jerry Maguire, the name Sam redacted. Okay. That voice, though, not Sam Van Hogren back even before he had a van in his name. It was actually Chicago writer, a media specialist, friend of the show, Scott Smith, an early guest host. In fact, the first ever guest host on Film Spotting. Sam was actually on his honeymoon when we did that sidekick's top five. My sidekick here on the show. I was really his sidekick, but he was off for that episode. Ironically, Scott filled in and he's the one who picked Bonnie Hunt. Bonnie Hunt. I forgot Bonnie Hunt was in Jerry Maguire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sam, how much do you love this, though? He redacted it really because he was so embarrassed, and he didn't even bother to look it up. He just knew it was entirely plausible (laughs) that he did that. That sort of makes him guilty anyway. (laughs) Good point. Let's move on from that to Equally Embarrassing Matters Massacre Theater. The part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. What's his name? Uh, uh, hi, um... Hi, Junior, till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. Oh! He's an angel! He's an angel straight from heaven! No, honey. I had all my kids the hard way. You just gotta tell me how you got this little angel. What do you do? Just fly straight down from heaven. Well, you're gonna send him to Arizona State. That was Francis McDormand as Dot with Holly Hunter's Ed in 1987's Raising Arizona, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. That massacre part of episode 680, Jason Reitman's Tully reviewed on that show, along with our top five too real parenting moments in movies. Film spotting listeners, as they always do, provide the connections between that episode and Raising Arizona. Jacob Krogert in Champaign, Illinois, wrote in and said, okay, ordinarily Master Theater is just a weekly reminder of how little I must be paying attention to dialogue, given how many scenes I failed to identify from movies I've seen and even loved. But Adam's brilliant turn here, don't worry, Sam just didn't give you any notes because it was perfect. Wow. (laughs) took me straight back to the late 80s when I repeatedly viewed Raising Arizona on VHS in my middle school friend's living room. Like Adam and Josh, I then had no idea who the Cone brothers were, but Arizona really made an impression. The tie-in? Maybe Sam was putting in a subtle plug for Josh Brolin's performance in True Grit, or maybe it's Leonard Small's obsessive pursuit of his target, which ultimately destroys him a la Gollum. Maybe I'm missing something obvious. I'm sure others will dig deeper regardless. For the record, Sam did give you some nice notes about your performance after hearing yeah. your worries. Yeah, he was about no feedback. <laughs> John Randall Reeves in Richmond, Virginia, shared this. This week's massacre theater scene was from the Coen Brothers' classic comedy, maybe the actual best comedy of the eighties. Maybe in an excellent movement of vulnerability, where Ed Holly Hunter is getting overwhelmed with a dose of her friend Dot, played by Frances McDormand, who is going on and on about parenting stuff that Ed doesn't know. The tie-ins that John points out, both Tully and Raising Arizona, are about the trials and tribulations of being a mother. Both have deadbeat husbands, though I think I'd still take the dim-witted, pure-hearted H.I. McDonough. (laughs) Wow. 
Because he's a real screw up. Yeah. I don't know about <laughs> That's that That's saying choice. something about Ron Livingston, <laughs> his character in Tully. Max Johnson in Nashville closes us out. Having gotten several of these correct, this is the first time I've sent in an answer. Of course, it's Raising Arizona, my favorite movie of all time. Wow. Yes, I saw Jaws in the theater, Star Wars when I was six at the theater, Raiders when I was 11, and on and on. But then my dad picked my brother and I up from school early to go to the movies. There were two to pick from, and my brother and I went with, sadly, Creepshow 2. <laughs> A few days later, my dad picked me up again, and we went to the movie we initially rejected, Raising Arizona. Not only could I not stop laughing, but that marked the day I went from someone that liked movies to someone that loved movies. I'd never seen anything like it, and it changed me forever, and it made me want to search out stuff that went under the radar and turned me into a true cinephile. I will forever be grateful for everything that movie did for me. It's also the second greatest moment with my dad. The first would be when he took me to a double feature of The Fly and Aliens. (laughs) Wow. Dad, Max (laughs) says. What a great moment here, a great bit of feedback with Father's Day approaching here in a few weeks. Now, Max also sent this in and he says, we can share this picture on our website. So we're going to. I'm going to upload it. I'm going to put this in the show notes at filmspotting.net. He says, yes, that is a permanent tattoo. I'm not kidding you. I think if I'm remembering the photo correctly, it's on his left shoulder right there. So if he's wearing, you know, a tank top or something, plain as day. Yeah. Gigantic Nicolas Cage is H.I. McDonough. Oh, you're kidding me. No, it's not little. It is not little. That's commitment. And it's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you, Max, for sharing your feedback and for sharing that tattoo. Josh, reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Corey Parker from Charlottesville, Virginia. Congratulations, Corey. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. You will get your own temporary tattoo from the movie Raising Arizona and your very own film spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. Well, I just don't know how you're going to top last week's performance by me. Are you just going to do the same thing? I might. Are you just I might just do be dot. forever dot. <laughs> no, all, I the like one it. performance in the history of the show I got right. I'm going to gasp in the middle of every performance. You could kind of go that way here and it would work. I could. A, a very curious thing about this scene, this will be a clue, are the accents. Right? The they're, absence of them? There, there's, there this are, is pretty Midwestern. No, this yeah. is this is tilting heavily towards Southern. It should be. Mm, there's a little bit of it in the character I'm playing. Just a little bit, even though... My character always has some of that. Okay. None of this takes place in the South. We'll give you that hint as well. And that's all you're getting as we get to this week's Massacre Theater. It ties in with something we're talking about on this week's show. As it usually does. That's true. That's all you get. Okay, I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. Well, it looks like you came a long way for nothing. Well, with all due respect, uh, Sheriff Rollins, I'd like to recommend checkpoints on a 15-mile radius at I-57, I-24, and over here on Route 13 East Chesterfield. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. The prisoners are all dead, and the only thing checkpoints are going to do is get a lot of good people frantic around here and flood my office with calls. Well, shit, Sheriff, I'd hate to see that happen, so I guess I'll have to take over your investigation. (laughs) On what authority? Governor of the state of Illinois, the United States Marshal's Office, 5th District, Northern Illinois. All right, fine. Uh, You want jurisdiction over this mess? You got it. Okay, boys, gather around here and listen up. We're shutting it down. Wyatt Earp's here to mop up. That's funny, Wyatt Earp. And... Scene. scene. Could have used a little more dot oh, from you. Every scene needs up, more dot. Amp up the dot. 
<laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 4th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. There's this kid. He's in trouble. Move or die. Pump the hate brakes, Thanos. I ain't letting Cable get to him. But I can't do this alone. We need backup. We're gonna form a super duper f- group. It's time to get back on LinkedIn. Ryan Reynolds in a clip from the trailer for Deadpool 2, which, yes, Josh, I saw over the weekend. I had a little bit of time to kill. Sophie is in a theater performance. I had to work the dress rehearsal Thursday night, work backstage Friday night, watch the play Saturday night. I'm a stage dad. But Sunday, I wasn't going back. Okay. (laughs) So while she was performing, I went to the nearby multiplex and watched Deadpool 2. Just admit it. You needed a superhero comic book movie fix. Yes. It had been a while. You didn't didn't know what to do. Since Infinity War. And Deadpool 2 is better than Avengers Infinity War. We'll have a couple more thoughts in a minute and some feedback, actually, on the Avengers. I want to hear about another movie, though. First, the movie that you recently caught up with, something that's not a superhero movie at all. A little smaller. From what I know about it. And it's a film that actually is a pretty nice tie-in, it sounds, with the movie we're going to hear Paul Schrader discuss here in a moment, First Reformed. Yeah, this is Chosen Custody of the Eyes, a humble documentary where, you know, the subject and the form are really a perfect match. The director and producer and editor here is Abby Reese, and she gave the camera to a young woman who's known as Sister Amada in the Illinois Monastery, where she begins a new life. She goes there, and I think this footage captures for sure her first year, maybe a little bit more of that, of what that experience is like to begin a life of a cloistered, contemplative nun. And the form of this is very reminiscent of Schrader discussing, as listeners will hear in our interview, the transcendental style or slow cinema, it's sometimes called. Boring is what other people will sometimes call it. So you have in this movie scenes of Sister Amada with a push broom back and forth doing her daily chores and the camera is fixed along that motion and that's what the whole scene consists of. So again, One viewer might say it's boring. Another might find it immensely meditative. Yeah. Remember our different experience? Fish heads? I knew where you were going. It's very similar to that. I love transcendent cinema, and I didn't find the fish heads transcendent. So mileage may vary, Exactly. I hear you. Exactly. (laughs) It's in that style, and it's, it's definitely in that aesthetic. So, yeah, with the religious setting, too, it had a lot of strong echoes with First Reformed and transcendental style. Um, so it's, you know, it's a potential golden brick nominee. I think it fits a lot of the criteria we look for. It might, if anything, be too small. You know, I don't know how many chances listeners or other critics will get to see this, though it is having a theatrical run at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. Opens Friday the 25th and I believe is showing uh, four or maybe five times over the course of that week. So if you're 
intrigued by transcendental style, the subject matter, or just interested in documentary form, because it definitely does something different in terms of handing over the entire camera to your subject and not getting the footage back for a while and having to work with what you receive then, there's some interest uh, along those lines too. So it's called Chosen Custody of the Eyes. You have me hooked. I can't wait to see Chosen, and we will link to more information about that film if you are curious in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We go from that movie, which might be too small, as Josh said, to a movie that is certainly way too big to be a film spotting golden brick contender, Deadpool 2. I like this movie, Josh. I actually like it more than the first Deadpool, which I thought was okay. It it worked for me on the whole, and it worked for me for some of the same reasons this movie works for me, including Ryan Reynolds and his comedic timing and his verbal acuity. I have seen a couple knocks on this film, Deadpool 2, on Letterboxd about it being maybe a little too self-congratulatory, that it positions itself as a smart send-up of superhero movies. Basically, watch how cleverly we're going to deconstruct all these tropes, only to then completely succumb to those tropes. But there's just really no grand satire here at all. There's just self-awareness and enough surprises and solid jokes And well-crafted action sequences. David Leach is the director here, one of the co-directors of John Wick, also did Atomic Blonde. There's enough of all those elements to make it entertaining. And I do think John Wick is probably the best comparison to Deadpool 2, even though Reynolds has more lines in the opening scene than Keanu Reeves does in the entire running time of John Wick. And that's probably not hyperbole at all. And of course, this film is more blatantly comedic, though I would say John Wick has its own share of funny moments. When we discuss Wick as a sacred cow here, maybe a year or so ago, when chapter two was released, I talked about its strengths being, I've got a bunch of S words here for you, Josh, the structure, the simplicity of it, the stakes, the style and the stunt work, and then the star, Keanu Reeves's performance. All three of those things are what work about Deadpool 2. Reynolds as Deadpool, as I said, he almost exclusively delivers his funniest bits with a mask on which is really kind of astounding, actually, because there are moments where he is actually, I'm sure, winking at the camera where we don't get to see him wink. But he just pulls it all off with his voice and with his timing. I love the banter with Morena Bakarin again, who's his love interest in this film. And there's one sequence where his X-Force, this group that he's created, his counter to the X-Men, where they go on their first mission, where I didn't just laugh out loud. I was continuously laughing for a full-fledged two minutes. And the way it just keeps amping up the joke, new layer after new layer, this mission gone wrong, it really is wonderful. And we have a great supporting character here, too, in Zazie Beats. You have mentioned that you recently started watching Atlanta, the series with Donald Glover. She's his girlfriend Mm -hmm. in that series, really good in Atlanta. And she's great here as Domino, who's superpower is that she's lucky okay (laughs) and if you are dubious when you hear that well you can imagine how the character deadpool is too and their back and forth during her audition to join x-force is one of the best parts of the movie because of the back and forth between those characters which they make seem so easy but i have to imagine wasn't easy at all and probably took some real time and energy to pull off she is a supporting character I wish she had more to do, but she makes great use of her screen time, and I would happily watch 
a superhero movie that just focused on Domino. And we get Julian Dennison, who, Josh, you surely remember from the movie Hunt for the Wilder People, Taika Waititi's film right before he made Thor Ragnarok. And he's playing a character very similar to the one he plays in that movie, a wannabe gangster, this disaffected teen. He's much angrier here, and he has a superpower here. He's Fire Fist. He needs a friend. He needs a father figure. And he's a really good young actor, very talented, and he is one of the bright spots of Deadpool 2, a movie that I don't take too seriously at all, but found pretty humorous and entertaining. What about Brolin? Brolin is really good. He's a great counter to Ryan Reynolds because he is so on the surface humorless. He's yeah. so deadpan. Well, he's straight man, essentially. Yeah, he's straight the man straight villain. man. Okay. And there's actually, he's so straight. In fact, it's so serious that there's one moment in the movie where he just barely cracks a smile, and I felt like it was too big. <laughs> I didn't want his character to do it because it didn't seem in keeping with the overall performance. I do think Brolin is just one of those actors who is pretty much always good on screen, but Reynolds and I think Beats as Domino are really the ones who run away with the movie. Deadpool 2, out now, in theaters, everywhere, making a ton of money. Tell me his name again. Thanos. He's a plague, Tony. He invades planets. He takes what he wants. He wipes out half the population. He sent Loki. The attack on New York. That's him. This is it. What's our timeline? No telling. He has the power in space stones. That already makes him the strongest creature in the whole universe. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony. He could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. Did you seriously just say hitherto undreamt of? You're seriously leaning on the cauldron of the cosmos. Robert Downey Jr. with Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Ruffalo in Avengers Infinity War. We talked about this movie when it was released a few weeks ago here on the show. Neither of us huge fans of the film. And we didn't get a lot of defenses in our mailbag or on social media. But we did get a couple here that we want to share that I think do open up a fairly provocative question when you're considering movies like Avengers Infinity War. We will note that if you haven't seen it, there will be spoilers in these two emails. So you have been warned. Spoilers ahead, starting with Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C. Just listen to the latest episode, and I was very curious by the end of your Infinity War review. I have a distinct memory of the announcement of Infinity War, my gosh, was that two years ago, that it would be a two-part film. Marvel's website refers to that May 2019 film not as Untitled Avengers Movie, but as Infinity War Part 2. All of my expectations of the film were firmly wedded to the idea that what I saw in theaters this week was the first of two parts. That meant that all I really wanted out of Infinity War was for the stakes to be as high as they could be in a world where characters are routinely brought back from the dead and for the characters themselves to recognize the weight of the challenge ahead of them. Infinity War more than met those two goals for me, and they ended with a cliffhanger that I absolutely respect, unlike I Don't Know the Two Towers, which did not have the courage of the cliffhanger that Tolkien did. In other words, I expected the story to be incomplete, and it is abundantly clear that not all of the disappeared characters are dead. In fact, I know they aren't because, for one example, a Black Panther sequel is in the works. But even giving us a year to think about the possibility that some of these characters might not come back is as bold a move as I could expect from Marvel and the Disney money machine, at least for now. 
I won't judge Infinity War entirely until we find out how it all ends, but for now it gets a midterm elementary school grade for me. Satisfactory progress. With all of that in the background, I was profoundly puzzled that the fact that this was part one of a two-part film didn't factor into your review. But I've seen this happen repeatedly across multiple reviews, so it seems Marvel did not emphasize that this was only half a story enough. It's obviously very difficult to reorient your expectation horizon of a film after you've processed your own reaction to it. But I'm curious if reframing Infinity War as Infinity War Part 1 shifts your opinions at all. I totally hear the criticism that we don't spend enough time with the characters we have come to identify with, and that a lot of this film is spent in service of those plot machinations. But knowing that it's a transitional film changed how harshly I judge those facts. Does it change yours? I just thought I would offer the question to be taken up whenever seems convenient, like maybe the fourth week of April next year when we will all do this Marvel Cinematic Universe dance again. Yeah, I really had no sense of it as being part one of two, and that doesn't necessarily indict Marvel for not making that a bigger deal. I don't know, actually, that would have impacted my take on the film. We'll consider that more here in a moment with another listener email. But yeah, I had no idea, and I don't really follow those things. Were you aware of it at all? I was aware that there was another Avengers movie, and we actually referenced it in our review. Yeah, we, the untitled we, we Avengers movie yeah, was coming. We, yeah. we looked it up because it was there in the back of my mind. So I didn't have the sense that it was like a cliffhanger, necessarily going to be a cliffhanger. I don't know that that would have affected my experience of it at all, though, because all I was really asking for is some sort of sense of culmination. When, mm-hmm. when I described myself feeling like I was a victim of a long con is because this particular experience just felt like another step plodding forward to a next gigantic phase. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was just t- getting tired of being shifted from phase to phase when I wanted a narrative culmination, not necessarily closure. Yes. There's a difference between those two things. So that was more of my concern. And I don't know that knowing this was exactly part one of two would have changed that. Okay. Jake Albrecht in Watertown, Connecticut writes, A few thoughts on your reservations with Infinity War. It seems to me that a major bone of contention has to do with Avengers movies relying on goodwill built up from the other movies. But I feel that they've actually done something fairly ambitious within movie making and it's somewhat lost on you. Sequels have long existed, but the Marvel Universe has pioneered serialized movies. I feel like at Film Spotting and for many other intelligent critical voices, there seems to be this idea that the Avengers movies need to work as independent iterations in order to be successful. I think at this point, if someone missed the first 17 Marvel movies to jump in and try to understand it would be insanity. I think that the movies ask you to remember things from the past movies is part of a rather ambitious approach to telling stories through the film medium. Maybe some resent that something they view as only a comic book movie expects a viewer to put in the work, but there's a rich payoff to those who are willing to put the work in. There's not a lot of character development in Infinity War, but there's nearly 34 hours of character work that's already been done, and the movie pays it off beautifully. Captain America abandoned the Avengers and the country he loves to protect his friend Bucky, but despite all his sacrifices, he cannot save him. Tony Stark was so terrified of a threat from space, he accidentally created Ultron and almost destroyed the planet inadvertently, a decision that directly leads to him trying to overcorrect and destroy his relationship with Steve Rogers and Captain America Civil War. Thor, as he somewhat hilariously recounts to Rocket, has lost everything, and then to see them sit with all their failure at the end. These men have sacrificed everything they could, and it still wasn't good enough. Look, I'm not a fool. I know what the box office numbers are. For Spider-Man and Black Panther, they'll be back. 
but the weight of the original Avengers sitting with their failure is powerful, but it's powerful because of everything that came before it. I think it's silly to criticize the movie for relying too heavily on relationships that were built before it. That's how serialized stories work. You wouldn't complain that the season finale of Lost or Breaking Bad didn't do enough to build up character relationships in that episode. I don't buy it. No? I, no, I mean, developing characters and giving them moments that enrich who they are, that's something that every movie should have, even if it's number 48 in a series. Yeah. I mean, th- th- this is like saying, well, there was wonderful cinematography in the first 17 films, so who cares if, if it's too dark to even see their faces in this one? Can't you remember the wonderful lighting? Can't you remember that those action scenes were well staged? I mean, shouldn't that just carry over? Well, no, you still have to do the basic works of good storytelling in the experience that's in front of you. And I think part of my disappointment in Infinity War is that I had put the quote-unquote work in. I had developed attachments to these characters through all those other films. I think we've both seen every MCU film now. Yeah, all of them except for Dark World for me. And I have liked the majority of them and have gotten very attached to these characters. So to me, that was the disappointment in that they weren't given their due in this film that was primarily focusing on action or scenes towards Thanos at the expense of time with these other characters. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, that was the heart of our review. And I agree with everything you just said here as well. I still need all of those things, whether it's part one or it's the culmination of 30 other films or not. And yet there is something intellectually challenging to me about reframing the movie a little bit. Obviously, I know where it comes. I know it is the culmination of those other films or is at least purporting to be. But I do wonder if people who regularly consume comic books, like Jake is suggesting, maybe have an easier time with this where they are used to this kind of storytelling and they're used to other stories relying so heavily on the heavy lifting being done in previous installments, whereas we do typically, as critics, sit in front of a movie and think of it as the only thing that matters, the sole entity in front of us and all we have to consider. Although last episode we spent time talking about how Lord of the Rings should be considered one extended film. Yeah. I think we both think of it that way. So when they're constructed well, it's easier to accept that format. So the equivalent would be, again, in The Return of the King, if there was no time for those great small character moments that we spent a lot of time on in The Return of the King, and you said, well, it was in the Two Towers. Yeah. It was in The Fellowship. Yeah. Why we you still need, get those arcs with it? the character that were started in the other films. They do fully yes. culminate, but there are also elements of conflict and those great character moments amidst all the action that's that what we I was, felt were lacking. That's what I was missing. Okay. Thank you, Jake and Aaron and everyone who wrote in with feedback about Avengers. You know whose Avengers feedback we forgot to get, Adam? <laughs> Paul Schrader's. Yeah. Our interview with the first Reformed filmmaker is next. Stay with us. <laughs>
Quickly, we do want to say some thank yous to some of our listeners who threw some of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show. It really does keep us doing what we're doing. We start with Senzo in Parts Unknown and John Dunning. We know where he's from, Ottawa, Ontario, and we have a nice note from John. Thank you for all of your podcasts. I've been listening to the show since 2013. I had wanted to learn more about film and decided to look at podcasts as an option. I've been hooked since my first episode, number 490. Not only did I learn about amazing films such as Gun Crazy and In a Lonely Place, but the podcast was a great way to pass the hours I was spending shoveling manure out of stalls as I was working on a dairy farm at the time. After listening to an episode discussing Interstellar, where another listener mentioned some sort of Nolan cycle on the podcast, I resolved to donate when the next Nolan film was released. Of course, Dunkirk came out last fall. I had forgotten this resolve and only recently remembered it. So, please accept this too little, too late donation of 3848 based on the arbitrary number of 0.05 Canadian per day between Interstellar and Dunkirk. <laughs> I don't know if that math works out. I'm going to trust them. Hopefully, by the next Nolan film, I can donate at least double this. Thank you to both of you for all of the knowledge, insight, and entertainment. Okay, I should have obviously accosted Christopher Nolan when he was here at the Music Box over this past week or so to talk about 2001. We need him to make more movies so we can get more money out of John. We got a Silver Club donation out of Millie S. and one from Anna, who says she's donating, honoring a five-year wedding anniversary. Team Boop. I don't look at me. Not Team Adam, not Team Josh. <laughs> team Boop. I'm lost. Thank you, Anna, for that. And congratulations on the anniversary. We also got two gold level donors, Christopher Hardy in Sydney, Australia, and Anthony in Brooklyn. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sins, the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. That was Ethan Hawke in the trailer for Paul Schrader's new movie, First Reformed. In the film, Hawke plays a pastor suffering from existential despair after the death of his son and the dissolution of his marriage. His crisis intensifies when he learns that the husband of one of his parishioners is a possibly suicidal eco-terrorist. The movie is already receiving some of the best reviews of Schrader's career. He, of course, will probably always be best known as the screenwriter for Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, but he also wrote Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ and Bringing Out the Dead, and has directed more than 20 films going back to the late 70s, 1980s American Gigolo, and 1997's Affliction among them. His first work, though, in film was as a film critic. That's right. His influential 1972 book, Transcendental Style in Film, there he wrote about the meditative, often spiritually themed work of directors Yoshijiro Ozu, Robert Brasson, and Theodore Dreyer. But despite his reverence for these filmmakers, Schrader had rarely, if ever, attempted to employ this transcendental style in his own films. As a writer and director, his work is emotionally, physically, and often violently explicit. So First Reformed, in many ways, is an exception. A few weeks ago now, Adam and I got a chance to sit down with Schrader to talk about First Reformed and his long career in film. And in our interview, Schrader discusses how he used, quote, the art of thievery as he set out to make First Reformed in the style of his trans. 
transcendental filmmaking heroes. Schrader being Schrader, there's also, he admits, some Travis Bickle DNA and Hawk's Reverend Toller. It was an illuminating conversation, maybe not for Schrader, but for us, Josh. And Schrader even obliges us by doing the Film Spotting 5, our rapid-fire Q&A. Here's that interview. My relationship to you is, of course, through your work. I'm sure like most people, probably watching Raging Bull and then Taxi Driver, but later then academically. Notes on film noir was a vital text for me in film school as I was trying to process Chinatown and the long goodbye. Josh, though, has a more personal connection to you. Yeah, I'm actually, I was raised in and I'm still part of the Dutch Reformed tradition that first Reformed is uh, which, set in. Which one, the, uh, the Re- Dutch Reformed or the Christian Reformed? So Christian Reformed Church, although I was, I bounced out to the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, for some dangerous years there, about 20 dangerous years. Right now I'm back in the Christian Reformed Church. As a matter of fact, my dad was in your class at Calvin College fondly remembers reading your reviews in the chimes. And I kind of want to start, you know, when I think about it, you're 50 years ago. (laughs) Well, was it? Yeah. I graduated 50 years ago. Okay. Okay. You're probably partially responsible for why I'm doing this. Actually, (laughs) the more I think about it, um, I wanted to ask kind of a two part question related to that background. It seems that the last time you drew this directly on that Dutch reformed heritage was maybe hardcore And so I'm wondering why revisit the milieu so closely now at this point in your career? And then as a follow-up, now that you've had some distance from the movie, have seen it with other audiences, what do you think it might offer those who are from this religious tradition that it depicts? Well, uh, those two films, uh, Hardcore and First Reformed, could not be more different. Uh, Hardcore was a piece of uh, juvenilia that I did fairly early on. It's full of... um, uh, spite, and it's not does not attempt in any way to um, approach spiritual values. Uh, it is really uh, a kind of a young man's uh, fu to his father and his church, and uh, and I'm not terribly happy with that film. Uh, uh, I, they maybe changed the ending. I've never been comfortable with that. And whereas First Reformed is instead the film that I swore to myself I would never write because I had written a book of theological aesthetics and spiritual cinema, but I felt it wasn't for me. Uh, When people would try to connect my work to that book, I would say, no, 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 Uh, I am too intoxicated with action and empathy and sex and violence. And these are not part of the transcendental toolkit, and you won't catch me, you know, skating on that thin ice. Uh, so uh, it was somewhat of a surprise three years ago when, after a discussion with Pavel Pavlovsky, who did Ida, that I suddenly found myself walking home in New York saying, It's time now. You know, it's finally time to write that movie you swore you would never write. As an offshoot of that question a little bit, so many filmmakers reflect their influences, I think, especially early in their work. In your case, you literally wrote the book on Ozu, Brisson, and Dreyer, transcendental style and film. Yet until now, you've never made a film explicitly in the transcendental style. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the details of that approach more specifically. But to paraphrase the opening of Brisson's A Man Escaped, First Reform is a movie that mostly unfolds unadorned. Why was this the right time for you to make that type of film, that style of film? Uh, I can't quite say. You know, it's just 
uh, things sometimes things in life come full circle, and you know the last line of pickpocket is you know how long it has taken me to come to you, and you know it's taken me a long time to come to this. You know, two things happened about three years ago. One was I had that conversation about Ida, and the other was I attended a conference of the SCMS in Atlanta where they had a symposium titled Rethinking Transcendental Style with three lectures given. And I so I, I started rethinking. And so for the last three years, I've been rethinking that book and rewriting that book as well as then writing a script uh, or fiction script in that in that manner as well, and uh, the film comes out on the eighteenth, and the book comes out on the twenty second. <laughs> you touched on a little bit in answer to Josh your drive as a filmmaker, and it was a little bit opposed maybe to making a film initially in this kind of style. Was there was there a conflict in you? I, I like the idea anyway. It seems appropriate to me to this material and this type of character we see in Ethan Hawke's character that maybe you were struggling against yourself somewhat as a filmmaker. Well, Is that I'm the case? Well, I'm also struggling against film economics. You know, when you make a film in this style, you're cutting right across the grain of what makes films commercial. You're slowing things down. You're taking out empathy. You're taking out action. And, you know, when those European filmmakers do it, they usually have some form of subsidy uh, from the government. But to do it in America, uh, you have to, um, you know, present a financially responsible plan whereby, you know, the investor will get return. And uh, I've never really felt that I could you know, make this kind of film and with a financial responsibility. But now the economics of filmmaking uh, have changed so rapidly and it is now possible to make films uh, that weren't possible before and and uh, make money. Hmm. I, I was rereading parts of Transcendental Style here preparing for the interview, and the very last paragraph actually struck me. You write, spiritual art must always be in flux because it represents a greater mystery, also in flux, man's relationship to the holy. In each age, the spectator grasps for that special form, that spot on the spectrum, whether in art, religion, or philosophy, which can take him to the greater mystery. At present, no film style can perform this crucial task as well as the transcendental style, no films as well as the films of Ozu and Brisson. So obviously that was the early 70s, right, when yes. you were writing 72, that? 72, yeah. And here we are in 2018. So how much of First Reform for you was an exploration, an experiment in part, to see if that style was still the best form to try to get at that greater mystery? Well, the, the, the style still exists. It is not a, um, uh, a monolithic style. Mm -hmm. you know, it is made of disparate elements, and individual directors go to that buffet, and they load up their plate with different proportions of those stylistic elements. So no uh, two filmmakers are the same. And what I came to learn in, in restudying it was that what I thought was a kind of outlier offshoot of the arts was in fact part of a larger tradition of non-narrative cinema that was burgeoning after World War II. And so I had uh, in the new in the new edition, I, I'm able to put this in much greater perspective. 
Paul, I wanted to put the transcendental style in the context of one of the theologians you name check in First Reformed, Thomas Merton, uh, a Christian uh, mystic, many describe him as, who wrote about a lot about Christian meditation, contemplation. So Merton is very important to your main character, the Ethan Hawke pastor here who's really struggling. I'm wondering what he means to you and, and maybe how his work and his thinking might relate to this transcendental style. Well, Ethan, in fact, has been to Gethsemane, which is uh, Merton's monastery in Kentucky. Um, well, the whole business of art and the holy has a lot to do with slowing down. Good things happen while you wait. Uh, and the holy in art is, is, in fact, a form of meditation. There is no such thing as fast meditation, and there is no such thing as fast spiritual style. And so when you start slowing people down, that's why I said earlier it runs against the commercial grain of the medium because uh, movies are all about, you know, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And so you start slowing things down, you get involved in a, uh, a tricky dance because you're trying to use the concept of boredom as a scalpel to cut out a certain sensibility that you're defining. But you have to be very careful because sometimes boredom is not a tool. It is simply plain old boredom. So how do you keep people in the theater uh, while you're simultaneously pushing them away? Were there times in the shooting or editing of this movie that you discovered that the style wasn't working for you, that it wasn't quite sufficient for what you were trying to to get at? No, in fact, I um, I was surprised. Uh, you know, when I made the film, I, I, I knew it was going to be a slow film, and, uh, and I had the very first screening for some friends, and I warned them, you know, I said, well, you know, this is, this is a slow film, be prepared. And the screening ended, and, uh, and somebody said, what do you mean a slow film? That's not a slow film. Hmm. And so um, somehow... Um, I, I was using these techniques, but not. But I was also still maintaining uh, something of its commercial base. What about in the in the writing then? Because obviously, I'm thinking about a director who maybe is taking on a project that they didn't write. They're going to think about the style and try to figure out what works best for the material. In this case, yeah. you wrote it, and you're so familiar with the type of style, and obviously, it was so ingrained in what you were after here. How how did that influence the actual writing process? Were you envisioning? exactly how the finished product more or less was going to end up when you were putting it well, on page. Well, I mean, I, the script I wrote was 82 pages long. Uh, the, uh, normally, a script is a page a minute. Uh, the film is 130 minutes long. So, it's you know, obviously, if I'm signing off on a script at 82 pages... I know it's going to be slow mm -hmm. <laughs> because, uh, it, you know, and in fact, the financiers came to me and said, uh, uh, you know, they were worried that it wouldn't meet the requirement of being a 90-minute feature. And I said, you don't have to worry about that. And then they came back to me and said, we're worried that it will exceed the, <laughs> the 120 minutes. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious. Was there a, a particular moment 
that you can reflect on from the screenplay that when you were writing it, you, you knew exactly where you were putting the camera and, and that influenced the writing in some way? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't know, know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew I was going to uh, center punch. I knew I was going to square it off. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to do planometric compositions. Uh, but you don't actually know until you, you know, until you're there, until you see the space. Hmm. You know. Yeah. And this is related also maybe to the idea of boredom you were talking about. I think it was in relation to Ida, a TIFF interview you gave, and you talked about how even the great transcendental filmmakers would incorporate a flourish at one point to punctuate that boredom. And certainly First Reformed has instances of that. Is that something that came about while you were actually in the act of filmmaking or something you yes. did envision early on? It did. Um one of the things, one of the nice things about making a rule, and you make a nice firm rule, no pan, no tilt, no camera movement, is that you get to break the rule. Uh, you know, why would you make a real rule and, and slavishly adhere to it so that you can break it? Well, you break it to remind people that you made it, and then you can go back to it. So one day we were shooting, and I was just thinking, and... I said to the cinematographer, I said, you, you have rail on the truck, right? He said, oh, yeah. I said, let's lay some rail. I think I want to lay some rail. He said, well, we don't lay rail in this movie. I said, today, <laughs> today is the day we're going to break the rule. Just for one shot, then we'll go back to the rule. And why that day? Why that shot? I don't know. Can you tell us what shot that was? It's an odd shot right in front of the house uh, of the young couple where a car comes through an exit frame, and then the frame is empty, and then she comes out, and she goes camera right, then he comes in and goes camera right, and then all of a sudden the camera just creeps along. When they walk to the garage. Yeah, mm-hmm. laterally behind them. Yeah. And, uh, and and that jumps out right at you yeah. as a viewer. Suddenly you realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. As you say, you're not allowed to do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest is obviously a, a benchmark or a touchstone for this movie in a lot of ways. Ethan Hawke's circumstances mirror those of Claude Ledoux's uh, Priest of Ambricourt. Did you revisit Diary of a Country Priest? Uh, is that something you do regularly, or did you actively try to avoid it actually making this film? No, when I uh, decided to work in this manner, I just simply uh, started compiling all the films that I thought uh, had been effective, and it was probably... Um, two dozen films that I thought really worked in this way. And, you know, we'll watch them all and try to figure out, you know, what to take from them. Uh, you know, the, the, the art of thievery, also called the art of creativity, uh, it has to do with stealing around. You know, if you go back to the same 7-Eleven every time, they're, they're going to catch you. So you got to steal around. You got to go over to the floral shop. You got to go to the gas station. You got to go to that little hot dog stand that nobody else goes to. And you get enough pieces from all of these uh, sources and you put them together and people think that you created it. And uh, so uh, this particular film is full of uh, little asterisks and checks and references to mm-hmm. other things. Yeah. And one of the ways, I guess, that you, you take those influences and then and try to make them your own, I, I noticed that a key difference between 
the the two main characters though is in Diary of a Country Priest, his youth and inexperience is always commented on. That's not the case with no. Ethan's character. And everyone in Ambricor despises <laughs> Ledu. They're really hostile to him. And it seems like everyone in your film is genuinely and generally, uh, they like him. Yeah. They, they seem to think he's a pretty okay guy. He's the one who keeps himself at, at a distance, though. Yeah. I mean, he has, he's sick. He has that disease that Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death. Uh, angst, despair, and um, that's not what the country priest has. And uh, he is trying to deal with this sickness in various ways. Uh, I will write a journal for one year. He, the the liturgy itself, alcohol, and uh, and these things don't work. But what sort of starts to work is a nasty virus that he picks up from another despairing person, uh, an eco-environmentalist, and uh, and he picks up the cause of the climate, mm-hmm. and it starts to coalesce his life, not in a healthy way at all. I wasn't aware that I had offended. Jesus doesn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm-hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. Mm-hmm. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead. But, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? You mentioned that Diary was one of about two dozen films that you considered or, or looked at. Was one of them Bergman's Winter Light? Yeah, well, the, the premise of this film. Yeah, is, very similar, right? It's same, same as Winter Light. With the Light. couple, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and then uh, there's a levitation scene, which is out of Tarkovsky. Uh, there's the ending, which is sort of out of our Ordet. The opening shot is from Silent Light. The credits are from Voyage to Italy. <laughs> the, the barbed wire is from Wise Blood. <laughs> what is distinctly yours when you look at it? Again, having some distance and you think about all those influences, but you see what's on the screen. Is there something that you can say, here's, here's what I exactly brought to it? Uh, in, the, in the editing room, editor said to me, you know, there's a lot of taxi drivers in this movie. And I said, yeah, I know. I mean, I put a lot of it in there, but I didn't think there was this much. Mm. And I, the idea of using, holding all these disparate elements in place with the, uh, with the glue and the um, obsessiveness of Travis Bickle is, you know, what sort of makes it mine. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, to go with the most obvious point of reference, seeing some scenes later in the film where Ethan's character is driving around looking at his surroundings sure. and, and, and the way it's shot, and I'm, I'm hearing that voiceover, uh, De Niro, in my head as I'm watching it. Back to Bergman real quick. Uh, you, you touched on some of the similarities, but even um, Ethan's hair and in his facial appearance is right out of Gunnar Bjornstrand in that film, right? And the scene, a really tough scene in that film, mirrors a really tough scene in yeah. Winter Light, the rebuke of, of Marta, yeah. right? Uh, and, of course, here it's Esther um, in your film. Where does, where does Bergman kind of fit for you? Because he's not part of that, uh, that triumvirate. No, no, he's a little too psychological. Uh, 
Well, for me, Bergman was the door to cinema. Uh, I was a product of the Christian Reformed Church, and uh, we forbade uh, uh, film attendance. So I never saw films as a child or a young man. And then when I was in college, this is in Grand Rapids, um, there was a, a little kind of a softcore porn theater that had hit hard times, so to speak. And so the owner had this brilliant idea to have a Bergman festival because he was near the <laughs> campus. And so he had a whole month of Bergman films in this little uh, softcore theater. And that was my first real experience with the European intellectual cinema mm -hmm. of the 60s. And I just was kind of stunned to realize that there were people of intelligence tackling the same issues in motion pictures as there were in college and church, you know. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realized that there was there was a doorway between the sacred life I have been trained to do and the profane life I aspired to. I want to circle back to that background because I don't think we got quite got to the question of what people who are still in that tradition might take from First Reformed. And I ask because when I've gone to various other Christian liberal arts campuses within the last year, everyone asks me about First Reformed. They've been, you know, just waiting to get a chance to look at this movie. So, so when they do, and again, having seen it now from a distance and with a few other audiences, are there things you hope that they might take away? Yeah, well, I did a three-city seminary tour, uh, two, two days, and uh, first day you screen the film, Q&A, the next day I give a lecture, and then there's a panel discussion. I did this at Calvin College, my alma mater. I did it at uh, Fuller Theological in Pasadena, and I did it at Yale Divinity in New Haven. And so it comes to Grand Rapids and Calvin, uh, 600 people there, you know. Um, plays for them exactly how it seems to play for everybody. You can, you can hear a pin drop. Uh, uh, you know, there were differences. I mean, I was sitting in the audience the, beside a woman who didn't know who I was, and she kept hemming along with all the songs, <laughs> humming, you know. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, that's probably peculiar to this audience. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, no, it has been. I, I wanted to reach out and do the seminary thing because of Last Temptation of Christ. Um, and Last Temptation of Christ was so vilified. And, I, and one of the reasons was that they, the, the anti-film forces got the first blow in. And once they knock you back on your heels, it's very hard to recover. And so we were, with Last Temptation of Christ, always being defined as uh, a sac sacrilegious film, a blasphemous film. And so I, I knew that there would be elements in the conservative religious community, Christian community, that might attack me. And therefore, I wanted to take it out of the road with the mainstream conservative religious seminaries. Uh, these aren't arch conservative, but, but they are conservative. And, um, and uh, just see how it, how it plays for them. And it uh, played very well. I want to go back to that cinematic awakening you touched on a little bit, and specifically your background as a writer and critic, because we live in an age now where anyone that wants to be can ostensibly be a critic, right? You can start a blog, or you can create a website, or you anybody can start a podcast. To, anybody who wants to be can be a filmmaker. And that's exactly right as well. But there's but, one thing you can't do as either a critic or a filmmaker. 
is make a living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't changed. <laughs> Very promising for all our young filmmakers out there. But but it was a different time, obviously, when you were coming up in a different different place, uh, maybe for a lot of our listeners. But where did that urge come from for you to to recognize that was something that you wanted to to try to make a living out of, not just making films, but just initially thinking about them, uh, writing about a, them. You know, the proselytizing urge. You know, I was one of those kids that would go to door to door and have you met Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I, I raised to be a minister, and then I realized I, I couldn't be a minister because I basically didn't like people. <laughs> and uh, so then I thought I'd be a lawyer. And then I thought, I can't be a lawyer because I basically don't, don't care about people. So I guess I have to be an artist. <laughs> and uh, But it was that same kind of soapbox ur- urge, you know, uh, you know, to get on the pulpit. And it just uh, changed the nature of the soapbox. Yeah. As you said, a, a new version of the book is coming out. And in it, I understand that you do talk about some current filmmakers. And we kind of track that through line a little bit of spiritual art. Bellatar, Carlos Regattas, Nuri Bilga, Jalon. I love that you're still engaging in the form. Is that just something that you feel like you will always be doing? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I spent the last three years, you know, trying to study this, and uh, and that's very time consuming because there's a lot of slow cinema out there, and they're making slow films faster than we can watch them. So, it, and uh, but I, I had to see what had become of this tendency in film to become slower and slower until eventually it hits the wall and dead stops. Sometimes it dead stops in the surveillance camera. Sometimes it dead stops in the art gallery, and sometimes in in the uh, in the chapel. But it, it pushes itself to the extreme, and then there is no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where do filmmakers fit into these non-narrative impulses, uh, which, uh, and, and w- which at their core, of course, are non-commercial? But if they're close enough to the, the core, they can still be commercial. They can still make money. But as they move further out, they pass through what I call the Tarkovsky ring, which means they have passed from commercial cinema into museum cinema, hmm. and uh, and then now you're talking about making films, you know, which are have the economics of, a, of an installation. Yeah, a lot to dive into there potentially <laughs> if we had another half hour or so. But uh, I want to get to our close here, and I promised that uh, we would steal a couple of questions from our listeners, Josh, because we had a contest on the show. We made them not just send their their name or email; they had to submit a question for you. And I said I'd steal a couple. Here's one from Anthony Gagliardi. He said, "If you had to pick one of your movies that you believe deserved to have found a better audience, which movie would that be? That is, which of your movies do you believe is the most underrated?" Uh, well, you know, I might say Mishima, but in fact, Mishima has found its audience over the years, and Criterion is just reissuing the Blu-ray of it. Uh, I was quite surprised that Adam Resurrected just disappeared uh, and uh, did not get released at all. Um, but uh, the one I keep pushing is Comfort of Strangers, just because it's Harold Pinter, and I like Pinter's work, and I think it's the finest bit of directing I ever did. Hmm. Robert Castilla asks, imagine a scenario, I love this one, where the American government, for some reason, has banned its citizens from seeing any movies by Ozu, Brisson, or Dreyer. The country is now allowed access to only one of these directors' life's work, and you get to decide. Who would you pick? Oh, it'd have to be Ozu. Yeah. 
Well, it's <laughs> any, all that needs any to be particular said. particular reasons why? <laughs> uh, that was a quick answer. Yes. So well, it, it I mean, seems he, like something you may have considered already. He is, you know, his subject matter is essentially the family. And Bryce Owens is the isolated individual. And um, so I would say Ozu just because uh, it's, it's more comforting to deal with a family-driven uh, austerity than it is with a loner austerity. So we will end with our film spotting five. Just rapid fire five questions here. What's the last movie other than your own you saw in the theater? Uh, Death of Stone. Did you like it? Yeah. 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 Terrific. What's a movie you revisited recently? It sounds like you've revisited a lot of films recently. <laughs> Maybe the most recent one. Uh, seven Men From Now. Uh, an underrated movie. New or old. Any movie that you think doesn't, uh, again, not of your own, that you think doesn't get enough love. Oh, um, there's an Indian film by a guy nobody knows, Guru Dut. He was this one of the greatest Indian film ever made. The... Uh, uh, the translation is paper flowers, but it goes under sort of kagaz, I'll fool something. Uh, but that is an extraordinary film. And uh, yeah. Okay. A random movie you love? Unexpected movie. One people wouldn't pin with you necessarily. <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, I, like, uh, I like Bollywood. Okay. And the last one. And it's never been more appropriate than for you. What's your favorite book about movies or movie making? Oh, um, I think Empire of Their Own. Uh, Neil, what's his name's book about uh, how the Jews invented Hollywood. It's uh, just a fabulous book. And it, and it details the process of the Eastern Jews coming to Hollywood, building this industry, and essentially secularizing, secularizing themselves. Hmm. Uh, and it's also very, very readable. It's one of the best books on film. Okay. Well, your book, Transcendental Style in Film, has been picked before. Neil Gabler. Neil Gabler, thank you. Uh, your book has been selected before during one of these Q&As. I think it was the Safdie brothers. That sounds right. Good time when yeah. they were here talking about that. Picked uh, your book, highly recommended by us, and as we've noted, is coming out again in a new edition. We really thank you for your time and your insights, Mr. Schrader, and best of luck with the film. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? My hands shake as I write these lines. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? Our thanks again to Paul Schrader. This is a movie that couldn't be more in my wheelhouse, having taught a course on spiritual crises in cinema, Diary of a Country Priest, the movie I opened the course with, also the movie that opened our Robert Brisson Marathon here on Film Spotting a few years back. I then went to Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman, and Carl Theodore Dreyer's Ordet was also part of that marathon. Obviously, he's written at length about some of those filmmakers, as we heard, and he does heavily draw on them, as we also heard in First Reform. If you're a fan of any of those films, or if you see First Reformed and appreciate it as much as I do, I certainly recommend going back and seeing those films that influenced it. And I think it deserves mention alongside some of those. Yeah. I, this is amazing. Now, obviously, from the interview, you could tell with some of the personal connections I have to the material, it's catnip to me, too, yep. in a lot of ways. Um, so I knew it would be intriguing to me 
for that reason. And I'm glad to see it getting rapturous reviews from other critics who are maybe a bit more removed from the subject matter. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like this is just uh, so much speaking to me that I'm overpraising it. I, I think this is right now it's my second favorite film of the year. Uh, the craft on display here yep. is astounding how he employs this transcendental style and also, which we touched on a little bit, chooses the moments to break away from it. Those are what do become transcendent. There, there's a sequence here that it, it at once echoes uh, the sacrifice, Tarkovsky, which yep. I believe he mentioned, yeah. and also 2001 at the same time. Yeah, and, and Ordet as well. And, and it yeah. all works together, uh, again, because it bursts out of this uh, this constrained sense that the movie otherwise has. So, yeah, in this vein of spiritual crisis movies, there aren't many that I've seen that are better than this, to be honest with you. I think this is really one worth tracking down. I wish I was more of a Schrader expert to place it properly in his entire career. I think I've seen three or maybe four of his films. But those who know him better and say that this is his best, I believe it. Yeah, it's in the top five films of the year so far for me as well. So you may be hearing a lot more about this movie. And I wish I could find the exact quote, but I did see a tweet from someone who had found a nugget in an interview with Schrader. And he's asked about Scorsese and his collaboration and the transcendental style. I don't know the exact context, but basically he talks about Scorsese's recent spiritually themed movie Silence and is a little bit critical of it. I mean, this is how devoted he is to this notion of the transcendental style mm-hmm. and the need for it to be slow and yeah, boring, pure. for it to be meditative. He says that, and he says it much better than I'm going to paraphrase it here, but he says that that movie has those elements and it has that longing and that yearning and that slowness. And it also has Scorsese being Scorsese. And at his core, he's a showman. Sure. And yeah. he can't help but have those bravura moments that for Schrader, someone so committed to it in this concept. Right. He feels like those undercut the transcendence. Boy, I'll have to see if I can track that down because I would love, I wonder if part of his issue there too is that silence ultimately ends up being a rather affirming film and that's not necessarily Schrader's comfort zone, but I don't know. Maybe not. Just have to wonder about that. Yeah, First Reformed is currently playing in limited release, including here in Chicago. It will be expanding to more markets the weekend of June 1st and expanding even further on the 8th if you see it and want to share your thoughts, we would love to hear them, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives, and you can vote in the film spotting poll. Right now, inspired by Solo, we're asking about a number of iconic roles who were taken over by new actors and who did it best. If you haven't already, we do ask you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. That includes The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, the aforementioned First Reform, which of course we do recommend, and in wide release, the movie we reviewed at the start of the show, Solo, A Star Wars Story, Not Quite as recommended. Next week on the show, music critic Stephen Hyden joins us for the top five 
classic rock moments in movies. I think First Reform could have used just just a little bit of classic rock. A little more, Really huh? could have tapped Layla? into Scorsese's comfort zone <laughs> with a little bit of Layla, some other stones, maybe. Haydn's new book is Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. Along with that top five, we'll have a Sacred Cow review of former rock critic Cameron Crowe's love letter to the genre, Almost Famous. If you have a favorite classic rock moment in movies or thoughts on Almost Famous, leave us a voicemail. And we may use it on next week's show, 312-264-0744. Or you can send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Mokumba. It comes from the album Loyando. More information is at mokumba.band. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I think that was Tarzan doing Chewbacca. <laughs> That's all I got. That was Captain Caveman. It was terrible. It was so bad. <laughs> I'd keep trying, but believe me, it doesn't get any better. Uh, <sighs> well done. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.